My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Nina Simons. Nina is the co-founder of Bioneers. Bioneers is an organization, a gathering, a conjuring that's focused on helping us as a species reach a place of true racial and gender justice for all people, while also rekindling our sacred relationship to nature, to the planet Earth. And in the process, supporting a just transition to a future that's regenerative, sustainable, and that allows every living being on this planet to flourish. And when I think about that mission, and when I think about what Bioneers does, including their incredible conference that they've been hosting now for a number of years. There's a whole rabbit hole you could go down of, of talks from some of the most creative, innovative, passionate thinkers, activists, inventors, artists, all of them looking at these questions of our future. When I take all of that in, that mission, that body of work, I see for myself an example of what I aspire to build and serve with the Wonder Dome, a place where people can come and be nourished and inspired to connect to hope and possibility, even as we look with clear eyes and an open heart at, our tru- at the truth of this moment in the history of our species and in the history of our planet. And it is a precarious moment. What I love about Nina and the Bioneers is the willingness to step into that space, that precarity, that uncertainty, and offer beautiful, clear, essential, although not always easy, in fact, very often not easy, because they're radical and revolutionary ideas, but offer ideas that could actually shift our way of being. And one of the venues that she's she's deepened that possibility space is her book, the award-winning book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, which is a combination of essays and reflections and stories and poetry, all circling around and centering on what it means to bring more feminine energy into the leadership space and the change space and the activist space. So in our conversation today, we use her book and her experience over the years of fostering and cultivating her own leadership and the leadership of other, of other women and around the world and what it might look like to bring more of that to all of the spaces that we think of when we think about leadership. And Nina has inhabited a lot of these spaces. 
nonprofits, social entrepreneurship, corporate leadership, the philanthropic sector, working with thousands of diverse women leaders across disciplines, race, class, age, orientation, and more to create the conditions for mutual learning and leadership development. She serves on the Advisory Council for Daughters for Earth and is a member of the Women Donors Network, Confluence Philanthropy, and Edge Funders. And in 2017, she was a recipient of the Goy Peace Award, presented annually to individuals who have made outstanding contributions toward the realization of a peaceful and harmonious world. Past honorees include Bill Gates, James Lovelock, and Deepak Chopra. There's so much more I could say about her career and journey, but suffice it to say it was an incredible honor to be in this space with Nina. She she has been a, a leader in creating the kinds of spaces that the Wonder Dome inhabits. And I, I think it's fair to say that the Wonder Dome wouldn't exist if not for the leadership of Nina and so many others who have made things like Bioneers possible. So if you're uh, into that stuff, we'll include links in the show notes to the Bioneers website, to Nina's website, to her book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred. And... Um, I really hope that you go deeper into this rabbit hole, particularly, particularly if you are a man or someone who identifies as a man or who identifies as having a lot of masculine energy. And there's lots of ways we could unpack that, but I'm just going to let you sort of feel that intuitively. If you identify with that and you're curious about what it might mean to not only step into spaces that are led by women, but also bring more of that energy into your own leadership, this conversation's for you. All right. So let's get settled in. And hear what Nina has for us. All right. Hi, Nina. Welcome. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks so much, Andy. It's great to be here with you. Uh, Yeah. It's really great to be here with you. I've... um, sort of had the privilege of getting to spend a lot of time with you at a distance because you have so many beautiful talks and writings out there in the world. And you've, you know, for decades been cultivating this incredible community under the banner of Bioneers. And so for me, it feels like a real treat and a privilege to rather than simply listen from afar to sit with you and be with you, although we are still a bit a ways in physical form, a couple, couple thousand miles maybe from east to west, but uh, really great to be here with you. Well, and for me as well, Andy, I, I feel as though I am encountering a kindred soul. Mm. And um, mm. there are things about our purposes and our callings that are so aligned that it's really delightful to meet you as a relative. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Thank you. Thanks, Nina. Oh my gosh, there are so many threads I want to pull on with you today. I can already feel uh, kind of a question in me about where to start, but I'll maybe just listen for a moment. And Yeah, I think the, I think the place I want to start is with something I've heard you and some of your colleagues speak to, which is this really powerful and provocative statement that perhaps the most impactful thing we could do to vouchsafe and ensure the future of our species and our planet is to invest in women and invest in 
the future of women and, and the protection and the education and the empowerment of women. And I know that you have a book uh, that you're, is coming out in second edition that speaks through that lens. I know that you lead workshops around that. I know that you speak really elegantly and consistently about the importance of embodying and embracing sacred feminine energy in our life, in our society, in our, in our world. And, and I want to, I want to tap into that, like that statement that particularly that statement, more generally that invitation you're offering to say, like, if we do this well and right as a society and a species, we could transform everything. Curious how that is alive in you in this moment. Oh gosh. In so many ways, Andy, um, Part of what I notice as I listen to you is that um, I'm really feeling called recently to address the archetypal feminine in us all. Mm. Um, Mm. That for me, part of what happened was that um, about 25 years ago, I had already been producing Bioneers, which is really about showcasing visionary and innovative leaders who are uh, illuminating the path to a restorative future Mm. in Mm. all kinds of ways. And, you know, from them, I had learned that we are, and we were entering a time when leadership was needed from everyone. And, um, and around that time, uh, my father died quite suddenly. And I, I felt as though the rock I had stood on internally was pulled out from under my mm. feet. Mm. And um, <clears throat> a friend loaned me a film, a video at the time, um, that was called The Burning Times. And uh, I've always been someone who seeks for root causes. Like I want to go to the deepest depths. Mm. You know, maybe it's my Scorpio ascendant, I don't know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really interested in understanding what are the, what are the uh, deepest causes we can find of the imbalances that we perceive in the world. And so I took this film home and it was called The Burning Times. And I watched it. It's a film that anyone can access online mm. because it's posted free. And Um, It was made in the early 90s, so it's a little dated, and there are things about it that I wish were different, but for the most part, it tells a really gripping story, Um, and one that uh, when I first saw it, I was absolutely gobsmacked Mm -hmm. that this was a mammoth story in human history that was not being taught in schools and that I had not known before. And although I had learned briefly about the Salem witch trials, for instance, when I was a kid growing up, um, what I hadn't learned about was this period in European history between the 1400s and the 1700s, a period that is often ironically, the latter part is called the Enlightenment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But during some of that time... (laughs) During some of that time, um, somewhere between 50,000 and millions of women were persecuted and tortured and burned for the supposed crime of being witches. Mm. And it happened 
in many countries all over Europe. And it wasn't only European. Actually, there were iterations of it that happened all over the world. And when I saw it, it was this huge aha moment for me where I realized, um, oh my gosh, all the problems that we're facing in the world, whether they're ecological or social, could be seen as an imbalance between the masculine and the feminine, mm -hmm. not only in our individual psyches, but in our institutions and in our mm -hmm. culture. Right? Mm -hmm. And um, and that really set me on a path of inquiry um, and, and helped me begin to explore how learning about my own lenses that were informed by gender were either strengthening or more often limiting my perception of who I could become mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, there's been a sort of 25-year arc of exploration mm -hmm. for me. I'm now 65. And, and that's involved working with hundreds and probably up to a thousand women over the course of my, that time um, in small groups and in some cases in large groups and really in an inquiry about what are women uniquely bringing to the reinvention of leadership and to the healing of our place in the world? Mm. And I mm. do believe, you know, that it is some complex combination of nature and nurture. Um, and I don't think it's only women. My first book was called Moonrise, The Power of Women Leading from the Heart. Um, but I was very proud that I insisted to the publisher that it included three men mm. who, for mm. me, embodied a quality of relational intelligence and leading from the heart that it's, it's not just women. We need everyone in this. And, yeah. and so I just think there is something that both women and really re-embracing the feminine in all its forms is essential medicine for healing what's mm. not working in the world. Mm. Mm. I recently finished reading a book by the primatologist Franz de Waal, the Dutch primatologist called Different, which yes. he where he explores some of the biological foundations of gender and sex and the ways that those overlap and, and diverge. Yes. But one of the things that I found really exciting and provocative that I actually, in a way, wish he had lent more attention to, but, but still does nice service to, is this idea that there are um, what primatologists and biologists call potentials in every species um, mm. across gender. And those potentials might be thought of as um, ways of behaving or ways of acting that normally are latent or hidden or not attributed to a particular gender or sex. And he's specifically looking at chimpanzees and bonobos who are sort of our closest genetic living genetic relatives right now and, and who are very different. Uh, even though they look quite a lot alike, they, they are, their cultures are quite different. But in both cultures, one of which the bonobos are matrilineal and are matriarchal and chimpanzees tend to be more patriarchal, in both cultures, both... Genders have potentials for, for instance, caretaking um, is a potential. That's something that, that the species needs. The, 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 the infants of both species need caretaking. And if there's not 
uh, a gender normative caretaker around, often um, the male chimps, for instance, will start to take up that role. And, and so there's a sense like I'm thinking of that right now because you're speaking to that. Like we need, we need those potentials and they can come through all sorts of different bodies and all sorts of different identities. And they are distinct. They seem to have distinct kind of uh, energetic flavors. Some we might call more of the archetypal masculine and some we might call the more feminine. And I just, as I share that kind of biological look into the, to the distinction you made, I wonder what that brings up for you. Well, it's, <clears throat> it's wonderful that you bring up Franz Duval because he just spoke at our conference. Oh, did he? Literally. Oh, cool. Yes. Like two weeks ago. Oh. And, <laughs> and, um, I wish I could have been at that. Well, you can see it online. Yeah, It'll be posted soon. Um, one of the things that I especially loved that he did was to talk about, well, there were two things that really stuck with me. One was, um, the the redefinition of the alpha male, mm, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. and I loved how he spoke to the fact that uh, in primates, um, the alpha male is the one who breaks up fights, not yes. who starts fights. Yes, right. Yes. And he's the one who who actually educates the young males, and and there are all these functions that have to do with care and yeah. communality. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I'm so aware of how we need to redefine masculine and feminine mm-hmm. in this time mm-hmm. because we have these creepy definitions that <laughs> our culture, so right? They're horrible. They're horrible. And they're so violent. <laughs> and they're violent and destructive in multiple ways. And, you know, we, we imagine, you know, the feminine to be the embodiment of emotion and frill and lightness and all these things that, and caregiving, of course, um, and the, and the masculine to be macho and violent Mm -hmm. and angry Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and clearly those definitions really have are overripe for renewal. And, and, um, Mm. and the other thing that I loved that he spoke about was he said in this whole movement for gender equity, the focus is on the wrong part. He mm. said, everyone's focused on gender, mm. but in fact, it's the equity that's the issue. Mm. And I mm. love that because mm. it's so true. You know, um, I just started watching a Danish series on Netflix. That's quite marvelous. And, and it's, it's sort of like house of cards in Denmark with, <laughs> with current issues and all of the top level politicians are women and it's fascinating Mm, you know mm. and and of course there are lots of women out there in the world who are behaving in very masculinized archetypes Mm, and ways mm, mm. and and uh you know and and the reverse so i love that you just read that book and Mm. (laughs) and he's marvelous and it's it's so interesting to really look at I mean, I'm finding myself right now in a state of very increased awareness about our human family on the whole planet Mm. and really feeling into how different cultures around the world are both more mature and less mature than ours in multiple ways, you know, Mm. Mm. and um, 
I just read a piece this morning about the Maori, and it was beautiful and and really was talking about their traditional ecological knowledge and how it's being applied in New Zealand. And they spoke about how two of their primary values are guardianship and what's the other one? Oh, come on, Nina. Uh, <laughs> well, they were just, they were, they were about, oh, yes, guardianship and hospitality. Mm. And mm. I thought, oh, wow. What if we had a culture whose core values were mm. those? Mm. How different would that mm. be? Mm. It was so yummy to me, you know? Mm. Yeah. I'm, okay, so I'm in a moment now where I'm noticing about four different things I want to talk about with you. <laughs> so I'm going to have to slow down and just see what I... Okay, I want to stay... I want to ask you in a moment if I can about, you know, you, you named, which I love, I've never heard anyone describe it, but it's so perfect, the creepy definitions of masculine and feminine. And I want to hear a bit more about what you might articulate it as the sort of truer or sacred definition. But before I ask that, I just actually, this, this movie you saw, the burning times, the, the figure you, you mentioned like minimum 50,000 maximum, you know, upwards of millions. What was, what, what caused that? What was the, what was the spark or to, to stick with the fire metaphor, what was the spark or the catalyst that led in that time of quote unquote enlightenment, uh, such, such brutality to so many women. Does the film explore that? Or do you have a sense of that? Well, it's such a good question. And I've wondered it over and over again. Um, you know, the reality at that time was that there was an ascendancy of the Catholic church. Mm. And so, um, the witch trials were a way of, um, were a way of quelling the kind of pagan, imminent, direct relationship mm. to spirit, to mm. the divine, mm. that women seemed to them to embody. Mm. So, so the first women who were often persecuted were the elders. They were the, the herbalists and the midwives and, um, and the doulas. Right. So they so were these are women who actually held some really important cultural, medicinal knowledge. Yes. yes. That that pointed out perhaps some of the some of the fictions or falsehoods of of the the Catholic kind of worldview or some some of those in a way that was threatening to that, perhaps. Well, you know, <laughs> it's hard to point to one source. Mm. Um, you know, I at the time that I first saw it, a male friend of mine asked me the same question. <sighs> and what I had to say to him at the time was, I can only imagine that women's capacity to bring life into the world was so threatening to men who sought power over that they had to dominate them. Mm. And, mm. Um, you know, what I know is that seven generations of children saw their mothers and aunties and grandmothers and sisters systematically persecuted. And that when I saw that story, I knew that the legacy of that time lives on in my bones. Mm. That's mm. part of what happened for me mm. was that I went, mm. oh my gosh, that explains why I'm so fearful about speaking my truth in public. Mm. Right? 
Mm. Um, that explains why uh, women tend to be so risk averse um, in that way, in terms mm. of revealing ourselves. Mm. Um, and it just, it just um, hit me on so many different levels. And part of what happened for me, Andy, was that I, it propelled me into a body of research where what I learned was that every societal system that I could track was transformed during that period of history. So, for example, at the beginning, the women were the doctors, the women were the healers and the herbalists. The women were who people would go to when they fell ill. By the end of the burning times, only men could practice medicine and you had to go to medical school in order and only men were allowed into medical school. So there were all these ways that things sort of transitioned from the purview of the feminine to the purview of the masculine. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a movement called the enclosure movement that had to do with how people related to land. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it went from comma, a commons where there was shared grazing rights and shared, you know, shared access to the land as a, as a community resource to suddenly things were getting privatized and enclosed and, um, and monetarily there was a huge economic shift from the beginning of the burning times to the end um, because there was an economic system that was set up around the burning times so that people who turned women in were rewarded monetarily. Mm. And the women who were burned actually had their uh, finances removed, right? Oh. And became, right. So, mm. so literally at the beginning of the burning times, women had more financial resources in Europe than men. And by the end of the burning times, that was flipped. And then you had this whole, realm of spirituality where you know before the burning times really people's relationship to the spirit world was a kind of version of paganism so it was connected to seasonal cycles and the land mm. and the lunar cycles and regular rituals and festivals and by the end of the burning times it was all indoors in churches right and mm. it was all regulated and mediated Mm. So, so that people were not um, encouraged to have a direct experience of, mm. of the divine, but instead it was mediated through a church or a mm. religion. Wow. So it kind of blew my mind. And I thought, oh, this is profound. And it's not the only time that patriarchy has been asserted in history, but it's a huge one, you know, and... And part of what I've come to realize, Andy, um, my journey has included a deep dive into the realm of uh, indigeneity and racial justice as correlations, in a sense, to my inquiry about gender. Because what I found when I did my first book was that um, the experience of living in a female body uh, gives one an empathic window on injustice mm -hmm. because we mm -hmm. all know what it's like to not be heard. Mm -hmm. We all know what it's like to have people promoted ahead of you. 
Mm. Right. We all mm. know what it's like to not have your gifts be seen or valued. Mm. And that's true, whether you're a woman or a person of color or LGBTQ or disabled. Right. They're all versions of the same inequity. Mm. And um, and so what I've been realizing as I've been watching over the last few years as the authentic histories of the slave trade are being unearthed and the authentic history of, you know, our our relationship to Haiti and um, and the indigenous history of this land. Um, as those are being unearthed, in my mind, they are correlative. They're related to the burning times wow. because it's another massive story of human history that's been underreported and relatively silenced and that I believe holds great promise for empowering women and for all of our understanding of how we got to such a skewed relationship. You know, there are researchers and historians that believe that gender bias is the deepest bias in the human psyche, mm. deeper than race mm. or faith. Mm. And uh, the more I live into it and explore it, the more I think it may just be true. Mm. Mm. Wow. Oh, I need to like take a breath with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for asking yeah. though. I've yeah. rarely expounded on it that much. And it's powerful. And um, yeah. I'm in touch with a number of things. Just, just your one, your first person insight that, that that centuries long history of persecution, which was witnessed by seven generations of of women who are both of our ancestors, yeah, lives in your bones and and as also lives in my bones and lives exactly. in our collective bones. Um, yeah, and uh, and I'm also in touch with the ways in which it's there's a there's a there's a part of our society that like it's like okay that's history that happened then it's over now yes and there's another part of our society that that's willing to go so far as you know like i'm thinking of holocaust deniers who are willing to say no 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 that never happened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what i hear you saying is like no we need to look at it it yeah. happened yeah and we don't know of course we can't know all the details was it 50,000 women was it a million either way that's horrific yeah. Let's look because if we don't look, then we're going to keep enacting yeah. these uh, violent patterns of violence across gender, whether they're physical violence or, or psychological violence. And if we can't get past that, like we're not going to make it. <laughs> That's, That's sort of right. what I hear you touching yeah. into. Is that right? Well, it is. And I think I think what it speaks to is we have to um, integrate and find reconciliation and heal with our past in order to move in a good way into our yeah. future. You know, I, I saw a tweet this morning from a Native American person who said, um, if German children can learn about the Holocaust, mm. then American mm. children can learn about slavery and indigenous genocide. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. and I thought, of course, right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. and which is not to say that, you know, Germany has it down, um, but but we're all learning. And, yeah. you know, I think I think part of reclaiming our connection to the invisible world means we have to make peace with our history somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And there's so much power in setting an intention to go forward in a different way when you realize that those patterns are so deeply ingrained. You said it so beautifully. But if it's in my bones, it's in your bones. It's Mm. in all of our bones. Mm. And it doesn't really matter what background you come from. It's in our human bones. Mm. It's all of us as human relatives. We carry that. Yeah. So how do we heal it in ourselves so that we can begin to heal it in the world? Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I will check out the film. I hadn't heard of it until now. Um, I'm curious what your own inquiry and research into these histories have taught you or ha- or maybe that you want to share about the non-creepy, the high, the, <laughs> the highest and best expression of these archetypes of feminine and masculine energy. Like what's the, what's the, the truer story we need to start telling ourselves about these energies if we're going to uh, move towards something better than what we came mm. from? Mm. Well, you know, my inquiry Uh, through the years has had a kind of centerpiece of leadership. And so I have convened women um, for about 15 years with a beautiful week-long retreat called Cultivating Women's Leadership. And, uh, And in the course of that, we watched the film and we discussed it afterwards. And we really looked at what is the shadow side of women's leadership? Because I think in order to embrace the beauty and power of a new leadership model, mm-hmm. you kind of have to look at the shadow. It's like we were just talking about history. Um, we, need to, we need to relate to both. And so my sense is that, um, at least for myself, I have been working to cultivate what I call full-spectrum leadership. Mm. which says there are all these human qualities. I imagine them on a spectrum um, and they range from the quote masculine or the yang Mm. to the quote feminine or the yin, Mm. you know, the Mm. active and the receptive. Mm. And um, those are the less charged ways to imagine them. Mm. And I want for my own flourishing and for my own best evolution to be able to draw from anywhere on that spectrum at any time. And Mm. a lot of what we did in the course of those women's retreats was to look at what are the traditional male, male informed models of leadership that we've all unconsciously inherited and what, how do women lead differently? Because, and again, Men can do it too. It's not just women, you know, but, um, and what we found was that there was a tendency to greater collaboration. There was a tendency to more openness and vulnerability, a willingness to not know, which is of course a huge superpower. Um, (laughs) and, um, and, and a much greater, um, tendency toward collaboration than toward singularity, than toward that, you know, winner take all model. Mm. Um, mm. And, and an orientation that often says it's possible, if it's possible to find a win win solution, let's go for it. Mm. And mm. 
And the other thing that I would say um, is that this is a little hard for me to defend in a rational linear sense, but in my experience, women have a kind of somatic relationship to the earth that is very powerful. And, you know, I noticed it um, from when I would have my moon time, when I was really feeling balanced, it typically happened around a full moon. Hmm. And when I was with other women, we would have moon times all synced up together Hmm. the longer we were together. And there were all these ways that, you know, if the if the moon cycles control the tides, why wouldn't they have a direct bearing on our Mm. human experience? You know, which of course, astrology imagines as well and explores. So, but somehow, you know, I've just joined an advisory council for a beautiful project called Daughters for Earth. And it was created to support the work of grassroots women around the world who are doing climate justice work. Because currently, in the realm of environmental philanthropy, women doing grassroots work are receiving 2% of the funding that is going to environmental work. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that's an example of the crazy bias we've inherited, Mm. and how Mm. we may not even be mindful of how it's manifested. But you know, in this time of environmental turning point and the great turning, the 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 climate crisis that we're in, um, we need to mobilize all of the best of our human resources, mm. and mm. that means women to me. You know, mm. and mm. and the men who support us, and BIPOC people, and youth and elders. You know, we need everybody all in right now. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 number two percent is so telling. You know, there's a way I can even locate a part of this in me as a man who, and I and I and many other parts of me, like I really identify as as being open to this sort of spectrum of possibilities. And some of my work is actually about kind of claiming my masculine aspects, but also some of the work is about embracing the feminine aspects and. And I'm aware of parts of me that, that get a little bit threatened or a little bit um, like, oh, well, I, you know, wait a minute. Like, are you saying men are bad or uh, like, you know, and and what I just so I just really want to underline that there's a sort of all of the what do I want to underline? All of the the sort of intense violent effort that has been put in like in my bones that I'm aware of to build a society where I have an outrageous amount of privilege, the sort of shadow side of that is there's just like this, like terrible fragility around like you saying, you're not saying go away, man. You're saying we need everybody. And right now I'm looking at the funding and you're telling me we're giving 2%. You know that there are more than like our population is made up of more than 2% women. Right. Right. Andy, right. Men. So it's just sort of like you're, what I hear you speaking to is a balancing but there's a there is a part of me that can locate a threat response and and your and your and that going like wait and i just wonder like how do you as a as a full spectrum leader how would you speak to that part of me or to men who are resistant to or afraid of or threatened by or actively a- aggressive against 
your invitation to say, let's balance, let's bring it all as opposed to uh, let's keep it the way it is. How do you speak to that? What a great question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that what comes up for me is how I continue to explore my own relationship to white supremacy Mm. because it's not dissimilar, Mm. right? I have privileges that are unearned that, um, that I inherited simply by nature of having less melanated skin (laughs) and what a wild thing that is. And I grew up with a very powerful myth that I was part of the good side. You know, that Mm. I I was Mm. advocating for civil rights and justice and racial equity. And and it took me, I'm uh, a little embarrassed to say, a pretty long time to crack the shell of my own white privilege Mm. and to be willing Mm. to um, really feel with my heart. I mean, part of what I notice about what you're saying, and I notice it in myself in relation to white supremacy, is that that defensive reaction tends to come from my head. Mm. And when I've done workshops on white fragility, for instance, I've noticed that um, the, the reactive part and the fearful part, the conditioned part, is a mental part. Mm. And that Mm. what has helped me to move into the grace of cultural humility is um, leading from my heart first. Mm. And there are a lot of indigenous cultures and teachers of mine who have said, we as a species of all colors and ages need to learn to lead from the heart, not from the head. Mm. And, Mm. um, And I think that when we do that, you know, most men have a woman in their lives that they love somehow, Mm. you know, and Mm. I think there is such a deep need for men to be given spaces and permission to feel the pain of patriarchy and to grieve the losses that we've all been feeling. Um, You know, it's not an accident that the active shooters and most of the suicides among, you know, have been men and and that there is tremendous pain in this system. But but part of the creepy, toxic part of masculinity has been, um, you know, the banishment of emotions other than Mm. anger Mm. and actually part of reclaiming our humanity, I think, is we have to grieve together. Mm. And and we don't have to grieve together. We can grieve in whatever ways we choose. But I think we're all carrying enormous grief, whether we're conscious of it or not. And some of it may have to do with human losses. Some of it may have to do with species and ecology losses, you know, land that we love that's been turned into parking lots and mm. and the felt sense that our ability to continue life on this planet is actually threatened right now. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, we have to create spaces where where anyone of any gender has permission to feel and express mm. 
the fear and grief and mourning that are necessary to move through this um, this valley we're in, this turning point we're navigating yeah. as a species. Oh my goodness! You know we're, we're we're recording this conversation about a week after the shooting in Valde, Texas, and. I'm noticing a part of me that like almost doesn't want to even presence that because I'm not quite sure what I want to say, but I think it's important. There's something about, about if we're just talking, if we kind of anchor in this question of leadership, though, the way in which that horrific violence, I mean, I was holding my two-year-old son in my arms the other day and just taking a moment to think about and feel into what if I lost him in that way? And it's just, it just, even the, even the merest touch of that possibility has like, is devastating. It's really, really horrific. And, uh, and one of the tragedies of our commons or our so-called commons, it seems to me, as you talk about grief is there, there seems to be an active, aggressive, this is the kind of creepy, like angry, like only good guys with guns kind of energy that gives no space for the grief of like, these are, these are people's kids. These could have been our kids. They are our kids. And, uh, that seems like a huge, that will be, that will be in our, that will be in our bones seven generations from now. If we don't find a way to, I don't know what to, to, to lean into the full spectrum leadership that you're describing to, to have the, the, both the active conversations about what do we do and the receptive conversations about who are we right now? And how are we, how can, how could this be, how could this be? And, uh, that feels you, you speaking that through the lens of grief is just really activating me right now and touching me right now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's why, um, I love what you're doing with Wonder Dome because um, we are seeing um, some of the weirdest sort of uh, degradation of our humanity. Um, and uh, my husband, Kenny, was telling me yesterday that he had seen a report that um, they, they had to ask the parents of the children who had died for DNA samples because they couldn't identify the bodies. Okay. So, so what this means is the people who are going out and buying assault weapons are so separated from their own hearts and their empathic awareness and their relational connection to anything to be able to actually blow apart small children yeah. You know, and apparently there's a whole debate going about whether they should show the photographs oh, or not. Mm. But, you know, mm. Mm, it seems that we as a people need to be shaken really seriously out of our complacency in order to make change mm. at the level, mm. at the large infrastructure level that's needed yeah. right now. Yeah. And, you know, banning assault weapons is certainly the first piece of it. But um, but also, I think it's important for me to recognize how much pain people must be in in order to yeah. go yes. do that. I mean, yes. holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. One of my yeah. mentors often talks about like 
it's just hurt people hurting people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and acknowledging that hurt is not endorsing any action that extends from that hurt, but, but until we can sit with it and hold that hurt, then I think we're going to, we, we will, we've seen it already. It's happening. We will keep having young men who have no set, like if, if I had no hope for the future, then, then, uh, well, and if I was hurt enough and ill enough and I had no hope, well, why would I care about protecting the future? You know, and that, and that sort of sense of like the sacred, we need both the sacred mask and the infeminine for, for the young people who, who seem to think the only recourses is this kind of wild degradation and violence. And that, that feels like at least part of the conversation we need to have is we have to hold everyone's hurt, including the perpetrator's hurt. And that can feel really scary and edgy too, because we don't want to endorse that that behavior that stems from that hurt. But yeah, I'm really like feeling a sense of, of necessity around the, the sacred work we have to, we're going to have to do if we're ever going to find our way through this as a culture. Yeah. And it makes me think of what you were naming in yourself. And I can feel in myself about that defensiveness when mm. our, mm. when our, you know, our reified belief systems get threatened. Mm. Um, that 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 those young men who are doing this um, have had their sense of grievance and unfairness and being victimized so stoked that um, you know how do we find the ways to curtail that that stoking of such I mean you know there's a there's a a native cosmology from the Haudenosaunee, who are the Iroquois mm. Six Nations, and mm. they say, you know, we are born with two wolves inside of us, and one is good and one is evil, and they are twins. And which one, which one flourishes? Well, it depends which one you feed, mm. right? Mm. So there we mm. are. You know, we mm. do all have the capacity for everything within us. Mm. Mm. And um, which mm. one are we feeding? Mm. Mm. Thanks for taking some time to explore this really tender. Um, mm. Yeah, there's like a lot of, there's a lot here and more than we have time in the 20 minutes we have left to unpack fully. But I, I really f- receive how much it's a part of your bigger inquiry into like, how did we get here? What histories of violence got us to this space, place and what histories of violence are, what violence are we enacting right now? that will be our, our children's history. If we don't realize that this is, this is going to keep rippling. Um, and I, and I know your book, nature, culture, and the sacred doesn't sort of necessarily speak about this particular issue, but it does speak to, at least as I understand it, it speaks to questions of, well, what can we listen to? Where, where, if we're going to find a way forward, where, where do we listen and how do we listen in a way that helps us get there? And I wonder if, I wonder if you want to maybe speak more broadly, less about the issue of, of gun violence, but just more mm-hmm. broadly, as we think about what we need from our leaders, mm. really, really specifically, what kind of behaviors, what kind of ways of being, what kind of spaces, mm. what have you learned in the process of writing this book or in the process of running your retreats? What, 
What's coming up for you around this question of leadership as part of our way forward? Well, you know, let's see, Andy. Um, I think what happened for me when I had that first aha about how gender was affecting my life and my way of seeing myself um, was that I became determined to uh, find ways to consciously shed culturally informed beliefs Mm. that I had adopted Mm. without ever consciously choosing to. And so all of those retreats and really all of my work since has been an exploration of sort of like peeling away layers of an onion skin Mm. um, Mm. of like, how do I get to the truth of who I am? How do I, you know, I have a, I happen to be an instrument of, with a very strong sense of calling or purpose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you invited me and us before we entered this conversation to set an intention. And really, I want to bring whatever medicine I can to -hmm. this world at this Mm -hmm. time when it's so in need of healing. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I want anything that gets in the way of that to be um, dissolved, mm. you know? I, I kind of love the image that um, I've heard indigenous people invoke of being a hollow bone so mm. that the essence of spirit can come through, you know, mm. whether it's the essence of your ancestors, the essence of the natural world, however one relates to the sacred. Mm. Um, that's so. What's such a wonderful evocative image, given how much we've been talking about how things live in our bones, right? Exactly. The sense that you could actually create uh, a skeletal sort of support structure that can let that move through, as opposed to kind of like be gummed up or blocked or stagnant. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. And um, and that may be part of restoring this feminine. You know, mm. is is. Um, I mean, my sense is in a somatic way that because we are all products of a culture that has uh, leaned so heavily on the masculine, on the doing, on the active and on the that that often our bodies get contracted in that way. Mm. And Mm. that, Mm. you know, the feminine is water. The feminine is fluidity and movement and flexibility. Mm. You asked about what the essence of it is. and and those are some of the qualities of it. So uh, let me find my way back to your question. Um, <laughs> you know, the question was something like, how, what what are we asking of our leaders, or mm. or who do we mm. need to become as leaders? Yeah. Uh, and I and I'm pretty clear that from where you sit, you're not just talking about necessarily people with a certain job title or political you know no. appointment, but really anyone who who wants to choose to lead in this moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. What is what's what does that demand of us if we step up to lead or what, what might that call from us if we step up? to Well, lead? you know, my understanding at this point is that leadership involves really understanding what your gifts are, mm. what it is that you as an instrument. What does your soul want you to bring to this life mm. is another way to say it, you know, mm. or what mm. what do you feel called to serve mm. that? But. Um, but 
while I am a great advocate of cultivating cultural humility for all of us, um, I also believe we have to balance it with understanding where we really have talents, where we have mm. something to bring. Mm. And, mm. Um, and finding that place where what we love most and most want to serve mm. um, meets with a sense, meets with our own talents and gifts mm. and the need for reinvention in this time mm. or protection. You know, I think uh, we are in a time of tremendous reinvention where everything about our civilization is actually up for review. Mm. And I think that that's true in every sector, in every discipline. As you say, I mean, I, I for me, leadership has become a calling where it doesn't mean that a leader has followers. It means that... Mm. You're serving what you most love with the most authentic expression of who you are in a way that's mindful of your own conditioning and ego tendencies and gifts. And, um, and is, you know, I think the greatest cure for depression right now, and there's, there's a lot to be sad and depressed about, yeah. is action <laughs> on behalf of what we care about, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, there's nothing that makes me feel as good as serving what I love. Mm. And mm. in many ways, you know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking recently about the title of my book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred. And I gave a talk at this last conference just a couple of weeks ago about it. And, you know, for me, they are the pillars of what I love and what I'm here to serve. Mm. And... Um, and so, you know, for me, um, leadership is a lifelong process of cultivation. I feel like, you know, I'm 65 and I'm just hitting my stride. <laughs> and, and honestly, I'm still discovering my gifts and talents. Uh. There, you know, I think that as humans, we have a tendency to think that if we do something or see something a certain way, then we assume that everyone does. And it's just not true. I'm learning that that's so not true, right? And, uh, and I'm learning that the personal is political. You know, I've had a, a real quest in my life because in many ways I had a mother who was sort of narcissistically wounded. And so she needed to be the center of attention in many ways. And so I have a big prohibition against that in mm. my own psyche. Mm. And I've had to really work with it to say, no, if I speak from the truth of my own experience in a really vulnerable, authentic way, it can be medicine for other people. Mm. And mm. a lot of what I've been realizing about this book, which is really a synthesis of my learning over the last 25 years, is that a lot of what I'm understanding leadership to be right now is lifting up others mm. and lifting up mm. the leadership of others. And, mm. and many, you know, I've had the privilege, Andy, of learning from and studying hundreds of amazing leaders because of my work with Bioneers. And that's really given me an opportunity to say, 
who are the ones I most aspire to be like and why, you know, what is it about them? I don't even have to know them personally necessarily, but just knowing their stories or reading their books or seeing them give a talk. Um, and what I realized about this book is um, throughout the book, I'm lifting up stories of women who've been my inspiration. Mm. And a number of women have said to me, one of the things I love most about the book is discovering all these great women mm. because mm. they're not typically um, known in the mainstream culture. Mm. And I think, you know, it's part of why we started Bioneers was because the mainstream media tends to cover the bad news, not the good news. Yeah. And, you know, these innovations that are showing us the way towards a livable future that's beautiful and equitable and honest and real need to be told. Yeah. You know? It's a kind of, um, you've used the word medicine. I'd also use the word nourishment. Mm. It's very easy for me. I'll speak for myself. I have been particularly with, you know, like what happened in Texas, for instance, or what happened in mm. Buffalo last month. Like it's very easy to see that news and go, we're done. We're done for. It is just hopeless. And uh, from that place, it's almost impossible to access the will to lead, the will to. And by the way, leadership, I've learned recently, comes from the Indo-European root word, leet, I believe is the root, root word, which one meaning of that word is, is to die. So in a way, leadership is a willingness. And you're speaking about service, about giving up. It's like, well, this is it. We're all actually, like Helen Keller said, the, the fearful get caught out as much as the bold. We're all going to end up. Yeah. Leadership is the choice to say, my life while I have it is to, is to live in service of something. Because mm. at some point, my life will end. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give that. I'm going to give that truth over to something bigger than me. And, yeah. uh, and Bioneers is a kind of medicine or a food for that hope. It's a place yeah. to be reminded that, oh my gosh, there are some really incredible ancient wisdom traditions and in the moment innovations that uh, fall way outside the bounds of kind of conventional knowledge about what's possible yeah. and yet are deeply rooted in practical applied learning and science and research. And it's just like, whew. So anytime I need a little bit of that medicine, it's like you've developed this, <laughs> you know, I mean, decades long archive of here's the evidence. Do you need yeah. any more evidence? If you do, here it is right here. Mm -hmm. And if you want to mm -hmm. lead, if you want to give your life over to something, boy, there's some, there's some really cool, there's some really meaningful stuff that you could do. So I want to yeah. like, thank you for that. It's pretty powerful. It's my joy and honor, you know, and, and Andy, I want to say, there's a lot of talk about how leadership involves sacrifice, but for me, not enough about the benefits of yeah. choosing a life of service. Because honestly, you know, when I was tending my mother's end of life, I thought a lot about, and over the last years of the pandemic, I've thought a lot about death yeah. and about our civilization's, you know, weird, underdeveloped relationship to death <laughs> and dying. <laughs> yeah. and, and I realized that, you know, I want to live a good long life. And if I were hit by a bus tomorrow, I would feel good about how mm. I spent my mm. life. And I mm. want everybody to have that, mm. That's, you know, yeah. 
It's beautiful yeah. and it's so powerful and so joyful. And so, you know, yeah, there's sacrifice and there's tremendous fulfillment yeah. available in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's gorgeous. Yeah, there's there's a paradox there. I think that's what Helen Keller was speaking to. The fearful mm. are caught out as as much as the bold. You mm. know, this way in which yeah. there's no place to hide. Ultimately, there's no yeah. place to hide. Yeah. So if you want to live the time you have, will you live it? Find that, like, listen to that calling. Find it. Lean into yes. it. Yes. It may it may indeed come at cost, but the uh, upsides are sort of beyond imagining because you just yes. if you're just seeing the world as you think it is with all of this as you said these cultural layers and inheritances then then it seems like fit there it is that's where we're going yep <laughs> but actually there's just this so much so much out beyond the that that fatalist kind of way of like okay there's where we're going i'm just going to hunker down and hide there's so much joy and possibility out there if we say yeah. okay i'm going to stand up anyway even if i am scared i'm going to stand yeah. up anyway and in fact, part of what I've discovered is that sometimes what scares me is what I most need to head towards, <laughs> yeah. right? Sometimes not, but yeah. other times, yes. <laughs> it can be a very helpful compass, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 Well, Nina, we're just about, we've just got a few more minutes here. And uh, as, as I often say to my guests, I feel like we've just begun in a way, although this has been a really rich and full conversation and, and I, I know you brought a, a little piece to close us with, but before we do that, uh, for folks who are like listening in this moment, if they want to go learn more about your work, your new, your the second mm. edition of your book, the Bioneers, mm. what what are some places you want to point people to? Well, thanks, Sandy. Um, Bioneers is an amazing resource, and, and that sort of rhymes with pioneers, right? Like right, the, but it's the, B like biology, B I O N E E R S, yeah. and there's an incredible podcast that there is deep, long history with that wins international awards all the time. And it's on the radio and as well, and tons of videos and writing, and there's a great newsletter. So that's one place. Um, my website is also ninasimons.com. And that lists things like the podcasts that I'm on and teaching that I'm doing and also has other resources. And then, you know, I'm just right now launching this beautiful second edition of my book, which I'm super proud of. And mm -hmm. it's, it's written in three sections. Um, it's an unusual book in that it's sort of short chapters and some of them are written as prose and some of them are written as poetry. Mm -hmm. um, there's a conversation with Terry Tempest Williams it's all about dancing with paradox. I mean, there are all these beautiful nuggets. And the first third is really about my discovery of gender as uh, in terms of how it formed me and my relationship to leadership. The second part is more of a sort of global view of women's grassroots leadership and also has these portraits of great women leaders that I've loved and admired. And the third section is really about intersectionality and how I've explored my relationship to indigenous cultures and BIPOC cultures and, um, and, and also the invisible world. Mm. So there's a lot in it. Nice. And I was gifted with the opportunity to redo this book and polish it 
And I've been someone who's been at an all-out run for much of my adult life. <laughs> and the combination of the gift of being able to redo this book and the pandemic meant that for the first time, I was really able to refine and polish and update it. And, and I made an audio book out of it. And oh, so I, that's awesome. I just really feel like it's a great, great resource for uh, anybody of any age. And there are college professors and teachers who are using it as well, and women's circles and all kinds of ways. So I would encourage folks to check it out if you have. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Congrats on inspired. having that time to to deepen and refine it and polish oh, it. It was an amazing gift. Yeah. 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 Thank well, you. this is this has been an amazing gift. I feel like I've gotten a, an edu- an education in history, an exploration of identity, a really powerful look at how to think about leadership. It's been it's been really mm-hmm. a treat. And I'd love to invite you to close us with, with whatever reading you brought. Okay. Well, I'm gonna close us with Um, a prayer that's from the book. Mm. May we be bold, resolute, forthright, and strategic, integrating the power of prayer, ceremony, and ritual in demanding the systemic change and cultural repair that our future vision, the climate, and the health of the whole requires. May we advocate for the voiceless among us, for the thinned, feathered, and furred, for the plant people and fruitful fungi, and for the many, like the whales, whose voices we have yet to understand, that their habitats and wildlands may regenerate to shelter and renew them. May we practice fierce compassion cultural humility, forgiveness, and kindness. May we sink our roots down, connecting locally, inwardly, and more deeply to strengthen ourselves. May we shed the unconscious vestiges of dying belief systems within ourselves that rank, compare, and contrive to keep us small so that we may flourish in co-creating a new world together. May we help to heal our relationships with ourselves, with Mother Earth, with each other, and with all our living global communities and kin. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Andy. Mm. What a gift. (laughs) I can tell how much I care because it makes me cry when I talk about the whales. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening in. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, 
but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.